0: Let's go to chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 of 1 Corinthians. And as we open the word, I'll read from my Bible, and you can follow in yours. We're coming off uh, the conclusion of chapter 3, which taught us, of course, two let knows. And the two let knows were, of course, let no man deceive himself, let no one boast in men. And we talked about uh, those statements and what those words mean and what they hold to. And so today, we're now looking into the transition into another segment of the text in 1 Corinthians. So let's read chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. I'll read, and you can follow along. This is what the Word of God reads. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you, Or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait until the Lord comes. Who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness. And disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Amen. This is the word of God. Our Unreached People group of the day uh, comes from the country of Saudi Arabia, and they are the Sudanese Arabs. There are about 171,000 of these people, and believe it or not, there are 0.13 percent population uh, of Christians among this people group, and so it's a small percentage, uh, of course, but at least there are some Christians there, Saudi Arabia of course is, Arabia of course, is home to Mecca the you know central capital of the Islamic faith and so we want to pray for this community and we want to pray for their salvation Um, they are uh, not oppressed but there are a different Arab group within the Arab-speaking world in Saudi Arabia and so we want to pray uh, for outreach to these people through means like the church and missionaries that are there, underground churches that are present in Saudi Arabia so we'd like to pray for them. Um, we're also praying for the world today. Um, firstly, I think, you know, Thanksgiving is today. So I think it's appropriate. We pray that we would all be thankful uh, for the provision and the life and the things we have. Um, and just the grace that we're able to enjoy and benefit from. Uh, so definitely Thanksgiving is on the prayer list. Um, and of course, as we move forward uh, with continual um, opening and you know, our progression uh, against the pandemic. Uh, we want to continue to pray uh, for that battle and for that to be, for a resolution uh, to come quick. So let's pray together and we'll begin today. God, we thank you so much for this day. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the gathering of your people. We thank you for the worship we're able to offer and lift up to you. We thank you, God, for your word. In First Corinthians 4, penned by Paul, left for us to read, we ask, O oh Lord, that this text would not only be meaningful, will not only make sense today, but would be uh, powerful in its ability to transform us. Thank you, God, for your word. We also pray, Lord Father, for um, uh, the Sudanese Arabs in uh, Saudi Arabia, and we pray for the 170,000 of these people. Uh, We pray for their salvation. We pray for uh, the reaching out to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we pray that a church uh, would be uh, championed and and, uh, established in this country uh, that what is now today, uh, presently, the central um, geographical location of the Islamic world would would become uh, perhaps a stronghold for the gospel of Jesus. We also pray, Lord Father, for the celebrations happening across the country of Canada today as we celebrate Thanksgiving. We pray that our hearts would always be in gratitude and in thanksgiving. We pray, Lord Father, that we would recognize you as the great provider of all things. We thank you for this day. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Okay, so today our sermon is entitled "Servants and Stewards." Servants and stewards. Yes. Sorry. Pause. Sorry yes. Uh, we need a Dodge caravan. To do a Dodge caravan. Anyone? Teresa. No. To... Teresa Nadia. Dodge caravan Dodge caravan, no. Dodge caravan. Dodge caravan. Dodge caravan. Dodge caravan. caravan. No Dodge caravan. Okay. That's not us (laughs) hello okay so our sermon is entitled servants and stewards uh chapter 4 opens of course today with the re-engaging with previous topics that paul has addressed already the nature the, the topics that have been addressed the nature of the apostles as servants of god and the eschatological expectation of the coming judgment of all people on the final day upon christ's return paul's main concern here in this text now appears to be to address the criticisms that have come his way. Not so much to defend himself per se and his reputation, but to defend the grounds upon which his ministry was built. Right? And we talked about this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. A mistrust in him, his character, and his work could and likely will lead to a deviation from that said gospel in the city of Corinth. So do not misunderstand Paul in this text. His intention is, uh, is to preserve the gospel in this community. And a part of that is defending his credentials. If you read carefully, you can see how he cautiously navigates this matter and this issue. So let me just sum it up. He's got criticisms coming his way and those criticisms lead to a criticism of his teachings. Criticism of his teaching would ultimately lead to a deviation from those said teachings, thus resulting in a deviation from the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And so this is what he is trying to address as an issue. So we have three points today. One, how do we perceived? Two, the true examiner. And finally, three, God Brings all things to light. So we got three things there. And we're going to look at the five verses of chapter four. Let's look at verse one. Let's remember chapter three, verses five to nine. Chapter three, verses five to nine read, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom he believed, right? And we talked about some of those things. In that section, Paul asks once again, what, then is Paul? What, then is Apollos? Not who are they? What are they? And what was the answer to that question? The answer to those questions were simple. They are, in fact, servants, right? Servants of whom? The Lord. Paul reestablishes this this argument and reminds the Corinthians of his nature and role in God's kingdom work. Remember that at the end of chapter three, Paul had stated that himself and Apollos and others, We're all under God. And so all that was his was theirs as well. All to share in together. But he wants that point to be heard in light of understanding his assigned role as a servant of the Lord. As well as other servants like Peter or Apollos. Now why would he need to do this? Why would he need to establish this? It it seems that the Corinthians were not just saying that they are of Apollos or that they are of Peter. But in fact, that they were distinctly not of Paul, right? We're not of you, Paul, any longer. In other words, there is an anti-Paul sentiment that is growing. And so this growing anti-Paul sentiment is what he is attempting to address because what is at stake is not his personal reputation or career, but the gospel itself within the Corinthian church. To see Paul as a competitor to Peter and Apollos is to not understand the unified status under God's ordinance and the one true gospel that they all believe. What they are claiming about Paul in Corinth is that he is in some way wrong and therefore he is not of the faith and furthermore, not trustworthy. So, Paul has taken effort in the first three chapters to make clear of these things. What he preached to them was in fact true wisdom that they sought for chapter 1, verse 17. He was willing to be with them in his weakness, chapter 2, verse 3. He preached milk to them because they were still infants. That's metaphorical. And that his work was like that of a builder who came and laid a foundation. Both teachings we see in chapter 3. These were clearly points of contention among the Corinthians in areas likely that Paul was being attacked on, or in the words of the text, examined for. We'll look at the word examined soon. He concluded the third chapter by using the metaphor of a building or a temple for the church. And of course, with a building or temple, there is a master that owns those things. And there are those who work in those structures, right? There are those who work within the building or the temple. And who are these workers? Paul is building on that metaphor, pun intended, to indicate two things to us. We are all part of the same building, the church. And I, Paul, right, Paul speaking, he is a servant or steward in that building, right? He's a servant or steward in that building. This is how Paul and others like him, like Peter, like Apollos and the other apostles are to be known as what? As servants of Christ and as stewards of the mysteries of God. Note the of Christ and the of God emphasis in the text. And what is a servant and a steward but one who obeys their master and one who is entrusted with things by the master. Things that the master is owner of such as the mysteries of God. And we've already concluded what what the text means when it talks about the mysteries of God. It's the mystery of the cross, the mystery of the gospel enlightened and and, and given to us through the the Spirit and and the Spirit's work within us stewardship is a running theme throughout the scripture from the very onset of genesis in in, in the the book of genesis in the very first few chapters we see the creation narrative adam and eve are created humanity is created and what is adam made adam is made a steward over the garden we are thus made to be stewards of god's creation the things that god grants to us Matthew tw- 25 comes to mind, the parable of the talents. You have the owner who's leaving, and he gives 10 talents, 5 talents, etc. Right? He divides, what's well, actually 5, 3, and 1, right? So he divides 5 talents, 3 talents, and 1 talent. And he tells them, here you go. Go and use your skills with these talents and do your thing, right? Of course, one buries it, Right? the one who only received one, and unfortunately is rebuked for those things. But the others use their skills to multiply those talents. They are good stewards of the things God has granted. Verse 2, Paul's intent or concern in this verse appears to be the feature that is to be sought in the steward. What is the feature that is to be looked at or looked for in a good steward of God? Trustworthiness. It is faithfulness. These are interchangeable terms, right? Your Bible may translate it either way. Jesus would say, He who is faithful... In very little is faithful also in much. This is a key feature to someone who is doing the work that Paul was called into. The Corinthians are being told here that this is what they ought to look for in a servant of Christ, what they ought to look for in someone like Paul, his trustworthiness. The word here is pistos, meaning persons who show themselves faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands or the discharge of official duties. We see this exact word used in both examples I've given already in Matthew 25 and Luke 16. Where the Corinthians were looking for earthly wisdom and eloquence and all of these things, Paul argues that what they ought to search for, what God searches for, is trustworthiness. So in turn we should value this feature as well. But it's not something that is you would think it would be, but is not highly valued. Gordon Fee writes, For Paul, this means absolute fidelity to the gospel as he received it and preached it. Now remember, we're not talking about humanity in general. We're talking specifically about the servant of Christ, the steward of God's mysteries. So, We're talking about the minister of the church, right? This person in this case, in this context, it would be me. Do you see the feature of trustworthiness, faithfulness? Do you see that? And the reason why this is contradictory or perhaps a little bit foreign to some of us, I ask you this question. When looking or even judging your pastors or ministers or leaders of your church, is this what you look for? Or do you look for qualities that the Corinthians would have looked for? Eloquence maybe charming characteristics, interpersonality skills, communication skills, preaching skills. Not bad things to look for, per se, and qualities perhaps we should consider. But what is the prime feature of the minister of God? Paul is arguing it is trustworthiness in verse 2. Point number 2. Who then is the true Examiner, if not people, I think the answer is obvious, but we still got to go through the text, so let's just go through it quickly verses 3 to 4. It is important to note here that Paul is not describing a final judgment, a final verdict that has been laid by the Corinthians in regards to him and against him, but he is addressing the process of examination, the process of how they are reaching a final verdict. And it is that process he refers to as examined or examination. But he writes here that he is not concerned with their judgment or their assessment of him and he explains why. So in a way he's criticizing them but another way he's teaching them gently. Let's take a look. Paul is firstly not concerned by the attitude of judgment from the Corinthians Because they are judging the wrong things. Like I just said, right? He's already outlined that the standout feature they should be searching for is trustworthiness or faithfulness. And that's precisely what they aren't looking for. So they're judging him on the wrong characteristic to begin with, the wrong feature. Secondly, the only one who can actually examine him properly would be the one to whom he is to be faithful and trustworthy to. And who could judge that other than God? The assumption here, Gordon Fee writes, is that since the criterion is faithfulness to a committed trust, only the one from whom he had received the trust can judge him, not his fellow servants, nor in this case those who might be under him, the Corinthians themselves. Thirdly, Paul is not concerned with just the judgment of the Corinthians specifically but of any human court, he writes. This, of course, is the obvious conclusion. If one is to consider God the only proper examiner, the only proper judge, but there is an eschatological, and if you remember this word, it means the end times, right? There's an eschatological nuance, a teaching that is present in this text. One that the Corinthians would be well aware of. Now, let me just remind you, The early church, the first century and onwards, probably up to the third, were extremely concerned with eschatological expectations. The Jews are heavily eschatological people, right? Waiting for Zion and new king, new Jerusalem, all that stuff, right? King to come. Their Messiah, the Messiah. But the early Christians, because a lot of them were from Jewish backgrounds and converts, if you will, And then Gentile pagans who uh, converted into uh, Christianity, they too had extreme eschatological expectations. Also note that they're just, you know, years away from Christ's first coming, right? So they're thinking, he's coming back soon. And we're now two two millennia's distant from Christ's first coming. So to us, eschatology expectation of a second coming of Christ, the expectation of the end times, our interest in the end times, our interest in what is to come is almost zero. Why? Because it sounds bogus. It sounds stupid. If it was going to happen, it would have happened already. These things that we see of things of future things to come, they sound like fairy tales. They sound like fantasies. They sound like ridiculous religious, you know, lingo and stuff that just doesn't like matter to me. And we live our life in accordance with that People ask me all the time Why do we see in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd century church So many Christians willing to die for the gospel in their faith It's because they had an expectation of being with Christ forever So let me reverse that question Why in the 21st century do we not die for the gospel Or are not willing to die for our faith Or even just live it out on a day-to-day basis Perhaps your expectation is not to be with Christ forever. Imagine you treated your marriage that way. I'm not going to be with this guy or this girl for the rest of my life anyway. Brothers and sisters, your life is a witness to your faith in many ways. and Your understanding of, of the faith I hope that our church community would not live in this way. I hope that you would not be an example of that type of shallow faithfulness. But that our eschatological expectations are equivalent to what we see and are taught in the Bible. I know it sounds crazy to you. But I expect that of me, I expect that of you. That we can live our life in accordance with this truth. Like every other truth found in Scripture. So he is not concerned with the judgment of the Corinthians or any human. Because the obvious conclusion, if one is to consider God the only proper judge, is this. And there, this eschatological nuance within the text is one that the Corinthians were well aware of. And so Paul is not concerned with any judgment placed on him by man because there's no consequence of their judgment. Who cares if people think I'm not right? It is God whom we are to serve and please, not man. So Paul brings his argument once again to full circle that all things are under God. Paul has been echoing this point throughout the text so far So it shouldn't surprise you or I or anyone else to see it here Once again Proper theological understanding of God As you can see Leads to a proper understanding of all things This is why I try to, to the best of my ability Teach you sound things Things that are of the Bible Things that I believe are truly theologically in line with what we see in Scripture. This is why I have a heavy emphasis here in this community on teaching and learning. Why? Because proper theology, I think, leads to proper doxology in your life. What is doxology? Doxology is praise. It is the worship of God. A final point to make here is a note on verse 4 where Paul states these words, I do not even examine myself. One of the harsh criticisms Paul received both in Corinth and Thessalonica, if you read the book of Thessalonians, was that he had hidden motives or agendas in his ministry, possibly for personal gain. Paul makes it clear to us here that his conscience on this matter is clear. Of course, it is solely his word that we must take. But what has he been saying all along? He's basically saying this that if there is wrong intention in him, then the Lord will judge that. And the Corinthians are not to be concerned with determining the consequence of a perceived notion in Paul, because that judgment and consequence belongs alone. In the hand of God. It is God alone who can acquit him, make the guilty free and deemed innocent, for he, God, is the true examiner. Final point: God brings to light all things. Verse 5. His final summary point in verse 5. And he begins the word with the word therefore. And therefore, of course, is the kicker. It's the it should immediately in Paul's letters when you see for, because therefore It is whatever has preceded it is is now, this is the conclusion. The final verse acts as a conclusive statement to the previous four. And it begins with the emphatic, therefore. And the conclusion is simple. Do not go on passing judgment until the time. And the time, if you look at that word and you do a word study on that Greek word time, you'll quickly find that it is used to talk about the end time, the final time when Christ returns. So it's an eschatological term once again. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not asking for the ceasing of all judgments of all kinds in the church. In fact, in this very epistle, in this very letter, the book of 1 Corinthians in chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul will teach the Corinthians, judge the sins in your midst. And to judge those on the inside. Who are the those in the inside? The faith community. Judge one another. I know we like to go to like these modern contemporary churches and hear these modern contemporary preachings and teachings that are like no one should judge anyone. And you go to gym and there's like no judgments, right? If you go to like Fit for Less, they have like no judgments. Wrong! In the church, it is judgment galore. Judgment from God and judgment of one another. But it's not for the purposes of making you feel bad. And that's it. We see in Scripture that the judgment of one another is what we like to call iron sharpening iron. We like to build each other up. Read Galatians 5. At the very end of that chapter, he talks about how we are to carry each other's burdens. We lift it together. We judge one another not for the sake of exposing your sin and saying, ha ha, you're a sinner. You should feel bad and rotten about yourself. You're not going to heaven. You're going to hell. And this kind of judgment. We don't have that final judgment. The judgment we have upon one another is a loving rebuke so that you would grow and sanctify in your holiness. So it is is a courage to be able to say, hey, you brother, I am concerned with the sin in your life and a desire for you to be more than that. If you cannot take that lovingly, then you have a gross misunderstanding of your sin. If all you hear when someone tells you, this is the sin I see in your life, all you hear is the judgment. All you hear is, why am I coming to this place and I just get judged on? Because you're a sinner. Where else in this world will they tell you you are a sinner? Where else? Nowhere else. This is the place where you get better. I'm sorry if it hurts. But it should. We like to think of holiness and sanctification sometimes of this addition to our life. It's like, oh, I'm adding holiness into my life. I'm piling up holiness. Really, what repentance looks like is a removal of the dirt of your life. It's a sculpting away, a carving off of the unnecessary evil that is in you. And that always hurts. It always hurts to repent. So I'm sorry, but the church is a place of judgment. And this is actually the sign of a healthy church. But the judgment that Paul is calling for a ceasing of in this verse is not that judgment. He is talking about a specific judgment being laid upon him and other apostles, his ministry in regards to the so-called hidden motives that the Corinthians have conjured. Paul finds this judgment misguided because it is not primarily their judgment to make nor is it something that they are even capable of judging nor is it something they are to punish he may be judged on other things but he should not be judged on the things that can't be judged by man and especially, especially on the grounds that the Corinthians have determined which are wrong Paul makes a powerful eschatological statement that's the word of the day, right? That serves two purposes for us. This is important. Number one, Paul defends himself once again, noting that his conscience is clear to know that God will praise his intentions when they are revealed and judged by him. And number two, the Corinthians are being reassured that all things in darkness will come to light. So they need not worry about the things they cannot know. Paul is saying that they too will be judged in this way. So they will either partake together with him in the praise of God or have hidden motives revealed so as to be exposed by God's light this is both an invitation and a heed it is a warning to the Corinthian church finally in conclusion the thrust of this text is quite simple at least in application for the modern I know like we love 2021 church people love application they're always like what's the application of the text how do i apply what i'm learning if it if i can't apply it it doesn't mean anything to me that's bogus just learning things of the bible is your application but here's an actual application i think we should take into account there is a thrust here for the contemporary church there is a contingency of churchgoers who will forever judge their pastors and their ministers on the wrong grounds. Such as your ministry success that is determined by their own measures. And this is a warning text to these people. And it is also a lesson to the minister, the pastor, that they are entrusted by God as stewards of God's people. And so, they must stand out in the future of trustworthiness. A lesson to both congregant and teacher today. Um, this is really sad to say, but I'll give you a little bit of a reality check. I do a lot of interviews with churches. Don't worry, I'm not going anywhere. I just like doing interviews. I like talking to local church leaders and hearing about their vision and their mission, etc., But when I talk to these churches, one of the sad things that I always experience, I'd say 90% of the time, that's a rough estimate, is this. They are concerned with my skill sets more than they are with my faithfulness. What have you done in your church? What kind of growth have you experienced? What have you seen happen in your church as a result of your ministry? It's almost like we've made church... A corporate industry and we look for the same things that Microsoft would look for that Apple would look for that Google would look for and that has infiltrated and I think poisoned our expectation of our ministers but this is not every preacher is gonna preach like every other preacher not every preacher will be astounding in that skill set not every preacher will look and feel and do things the way that you expect them to and you want them to and you think they should, right? Because we're sinners too. But there's one thing you can lean on and say to your friend who says, what's your pastor like? If you can please say, don't say this about me if it's not true, but whatever church you go to, if you can say confidently, I don't know everything about him. I don't think he has every skill set, but he's faithful. He's faithful to God and his word and to us if you can say that you got keep keeper Gordon Fee writes the application of this paragraph verses 1 to 5 to the compar- contemporary church it seems self-evident on the one hand it is a word to those in the church who are forever examining their ministers and who in any case tend to do so on the wrong grounds Corinth is not the only church that ever became disillusioned with its minister because he or she lacked enough charismatic qualities. But God's word to us is that faithfulness, not success, is what God requires of his servants. On the other hand, although not intended so by Paul, by implication, it is also a word to those who preach and teach that they recognize themselves as under trust. Their trustworthiness is is finally going to be judged by the Lord himself on the grounds of their being faithful to the trust itself, the gospel. In that hour, none of our self-evaluations as to our worth in the kingdom is going to count for a thing. Only our faithfulness to the gospel itself. I think it's a powerful statement and a teaching to remember. This is the word of God. Let's pray and reflect on what we've learned today Let's take some time to respond in song.